It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a book. Hi, it's Sunday, you're listening to FabRadioInternational.com and this is The Bookworm. I'm your host Ed Fortune and I'm here with... Cy Lloyd, your co-host. So, coming up on the show, I will be in, I will be reviewing 21st Century Tank Girl. Oh, it's a shiny book. Uh, inside? I will be reviewing... Well, I will be doing a little um, catch-up sort of cover of the Farseer trilogy and the Tawny Man trilogy um, because um, the lovely Robin Hobb will be publishing the her next book in this kind of series in August. She's already done part one uh, and now she's doing part two of the Fits and the Fool trilogy. Uh, we'll also be talking to Game of Thrones uh, storyboard artist and a general comic book artist and generally all around nice dude Will Simpson in the middle of the show and at the end of the show We'll probably be talking about gravity, I think. We'll be talking about gravity in, in, in a publishing way, not in a physics way. We, we might defy gravity, I don't know, we'll try. Let it go. Across the world, 24 hours a day. Book news. That's that's news about books. Um, the shortlist for the first James Herbert Award for horror writing has been announced. Um, the the books, are several of which which we've reviewed on the show, by the way, um, most of which I've read. Um, so that's exciting. I, I read horror apparently. Um, Emil Carey, The Girl with All the Gifts, which we absolutely adored. Mm. Um, Nick Cutter's The Troop, published by Headline. Fran- Francis Harding's Cuckoo Song, uh, which I also absolutely adored. Uh, Andrew Michael Haley's The, the, the Lonely. Um, um, Josh Malaman's Bird Box and Kim Newman's An English Ghost Story. Ooh, uh, Kim I'm, Newman. Kim Newman. I'm going to be very, very biased and say Francis Harding, Francis Harding, Francis Harding. Cuckoo song. If, if it doesn't at least get some sort of acknowledgement, it'll be a crying shame because that's an amazing novel. Uh, just to be nominated. It, it just, I mean, it's just been nominated for all of them. I mean, it's lovely, okay. but <sighs> The Girl with All the Gifts is really good. Mm. They're all really good. Um, I kind of, I want it to go to Francis Harding or maybe Josh Malaman. Or, or maybe well, you said just to be biased. Why is there a bias? Because we've interviewed Francis. Ah, and, and we 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 like Francis. Okay, she, I, I think she's ace, and she's a bit of a friend of the show. So For sure. So there is there is bias. So there is a slight bias. Um, <laughs> whereas whereas <laughs> the reverse bias is true. Kim Newman, because Kim Newman used to used to write for Starburst magazine way back when, and he's one yeah. of the old. He's one of the kind of the the old kind of guard. And uh, I talked to him at Worldcon. And we were chatting away, and he was like. Do you realise you used to work for Starburst magazine? He was like, yes. Do you realise they, they probably still owe me money? I was like, oh, I can't help you with that then. <laughs> oh, well, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. 
slight, slight awkward shuffling, which he said on purpose because you know the, the magazine had gone bust and then yeah. re- had been reinvigorated several mm-hmm. times since then. Because you know, if your magazine's been around for forty years, you, you've had a couple of adventures, shall yeah. we say? Yeah. Um, but um, Stoppers magazine, by the way, is out in W. Smith right now, and it is absolutely fantastic. And you should totally and utterly, hundred percent, buy one and read all the stuff that I've written for it. Also, everyone else's stuff as well. Um, getting away from that and stop digging myself into a small hole. Um, John Lydon supports libraries. There we go. He's not a nihilist anymore. Uh, he never was. I know. Um, shall I get this out of the way? The Sex Pistols were a boy band. I don't care what you think. The Sex Pistols were a boy band. Um, in a specially recorded message, singer-songwriter, musician and all-round bore, John Lydon, also known as... <laughs> <laughs> also known as Johnny Rotten has implored the UK and libraries to show their support on National Libraries Day which is Saturday the 7th February uh, that's next week by the way in case you're not paying attention but he's um, giving us good messages it, 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 it is a good message it is no, you know it is a good message and in fairness you know he's a very intelligent bloke who often gets it completely right um, mm. I buy country life butter on that basis uh, exactly um, I will hear no argument against country life butter for historic reasons um, it, it, this this entire support, by the way, does does coincide with his book uh, "Anger is an Energy." Oh, there's um, a book. Um, there, there, there's a coincidence. He has a book out. It's called "Anger is an Energy," apparently. Um, but yes, the recording will be available to listen to uh, in libraries. Um, Saturday, seventh February. Um, there'll be all sorts of things going off. There'll be you know Tolkien trail walks. Guinness World Record attempts, stargazing, apparently the Black Library are doing a thing as well, there's a Warhammer thing going on, lots of local authors are turning up, historians, all sorts of things, National Libraries Day, never mind John Lydon, National Libraries Day, that sounds fab. National uh, Libraries Day. National Libraries Day, where you turn up the library and it's essentially a book-themed family fun day, what couldn't be better, you know, what couldn't be more fun? Uh, as far as we're concerned, we're biased to a book show. If you're sitting there going, actually, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather one themed on, on movies or fantasy or, or video games. Well, that's lovely. Library's Day. Fantastic. Um, moving on, um, uh, Parliament member Thomas Doherty has written a, a letter to uh, Shadiv uh, Javid, the Britain's Culture Secretary, noting that there is a compul- co- compelling case for a national debate on whether we should ban Mein Kampf. No, we shouldn't. That wasn't much of a debate, Ed. No, it really wasn't, but come on. Um, I mean, he's basically, he's saying, the thing is, his letter says, I don't think the book should be banned, but we should talk about it. Okay, let's talk about freedom of speech. We should have some. Definitely. We should, we should have freedom of expression. These are, these are basic... Know, what, what do they want? Should we get copies of it, pile them up and burn them? Because that would be ironic, wouldn't it? No. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to explain to people why that's ironic, probably, these days, unfortunately, because a lot of people don't know about that. Maybe that's why we should have the debate. Maybe that's his point. Also, the point know. is, if it, once you go down the slippery slope of let's ban this specific book mm. he, here, that it, it, is, yeah. it, it is the slippery slope for the end of the wedge of, oh, well, if we don't like that book, then we don't like this book, and we don't like yeah. this book, and, and yeah. And... and Honestly, how how relevant is how relevant is Mein Kampf? It's it's, it's a historical artifact at this point. Yeah, um, I'm told it's not very good. I've never read it. It's the scribblings of a madman. Um, I, I read it when I was 18 and being pretentious. I started reading it and stopped because it was rubbish and, and unpleasant. I mean, it's kind of zeitgeisty for young Austrians at the time, apparently. But you know. <laughs> 
if they were wrong. (laughs) But if you you think back of all the literature that's ever been published, only a small percentage ever makes it into the sort of canon of classics and stuff, isn't it? You know, for every Jane Austen, there's probably another 50 people writing popular romance novels of the day that we don't remember now. I mean, that's true. Uh, The chances are it's probably crap, but it was written by him, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, of the the narrow list of books written by murderous warlords, there aren't that many, and there's not that many that have survived history. Is there not? Do they not have a tendency to sort of write out the burblings of their minds and get them self-published in a vanity deal? Are you familiar with the works of Sean Yu? Uh, well, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a f- I think that's the first actual Serenity quote we've had in a while. Well done. <laughs> um, oh, the geeky strong this week. Uh, talking about geeky things, George R. R. Martin has announced that The Winds of Winter is not going to be published in 2015. No, George! Really? When's it going to be published? Uh, we, we have no idea. It's just not 2015. <laughs> Oddly enough... Uh, the next Ice Age, ironically. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that blog who writes that column for that Starburst magazine thing that I've mentioned, that would yeah. be me. I, I did actually put down maybe 2015, we hope, fingers crossed, maybe. Um, but every time, you, every time as, as someone who writes and reports and talks about the boutonnieres every mm-hmm. time it comes to someone like George or Martin and it's not just George they are other authors that we could we could lump in in the kind of their books don't come out very regularly it's just that he's the most famous example of someone who is mm. you know has a schedule that everyone's eagerly anticipating um, but it's not that uncommon and you know to, to quote Neil Gaiman George or Martin is not your bitch at what point are the TV shows going to run out of t- source material? Because we can't be far uh, about off About two years' time. Oh, dear. He's flatly denied that he's finished writing everything. However, he has written, between this, he's, he's written half a source book on the, the world. And um, my understanding is that the people at um, HBO have had him write an outline of what happens and what happens yes, at he, the end. Yes, he, he has written what happens at the end in a brief outline and they've locked it in a reinforced cupboard lead line so <laughs> Superman can't there's read a, it. There's, um, there's a they did that with the last page of Harry Potter, didn't they? Because, <laughs> again, she had it kind of broadly sketched out from the beginning and knew what happened at the end and there were rumours that uh, yeah her publisher had the last page locked in a lead lined vault in a basement uh, you know secured underneath the city of London or whatever for a decade (laughs) there's a master document as I understand there's a master document which is not you know, he's not written the book, he's just sat down and because it's George Ormond, it's probably quite long he, he's, he's written it all out and also he's he's written half of a world source book which you can buy um, mm. but yes, okay it's not coming out in 2015, wait um, some of us have had to re- wait 20 years for the sequel to, of books to come out back, so there you go anyway well, we'll be back after these short messages This is Fab Radio International. Starburst Magazine. Starburst Magazine. The world's longest running magazine of sci fi horror and fantasy. Get the latest news, features, interviews, and reviews from your favorite genre. Available from a newsagent near you or download to your iPad today. Whether you're an acoustic virtuoso or a rock god, Fab Music Store. At Fab, we buy and sell new and used kit with guitar brands like Faith, Breedlove, Lag and Westfield 
and Dynacord and Electra Voice sound systems. We hire sound systems from £60 and have guitars for sale from £39.99. With ukuleles, banjos and all the lights, leads, stands and mixers you can imagine. For sales, hire and service, Fab Music Store, Little Underbank, Stockport. Visit fabmusicstore.co.uk. The Gay Agenda on Fab Radio International. All the offbeat chat and debate you'd expect from militant liberal gay warriors. Set on converting you to the homosexual regime. A retired U.S. doctor, John Schmidt, who professes to be able to cure homosexuality, has blamed popular music and pop culture on affecting people. Oh, that's Ho- right. Is this the guy that said Adele? Adele. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I thought this was just amazing. Adele, don't listen to Adele because she'll turn you gay. The Gay Agenda broadcasts live every Thursday evening from 9 p.m. till 11 p.m. on FabRadioInternational.com. The Frog and Bucket in the Northern Quarter, the original home of Manchester comedy for 20 years. You can watch the best live stand-up comedy from all over the world. To book online and check all show details and offers, visit frogandbucket.com. That's frogandbucket.com. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fabrician International. If you want to interact with the show uh, in any way, shape or form, you can contact us via Radio Bookworm, Radio Bookworm at Twitter, we're at the at symbol Radio Bookworm, on Facebook, we're slash Radio Bookworm, on Tumblr, we are Radio Bookworm, we are also available on Mixfood, Cloud and iTunes. You can get to us via the Starburst website as well. Mixclude, is that the Scottish version? Mixclude. Mixclude. On Facebook, technically, we're Starburst Bookworm Podcast because you changed the name. Uh, if you type in Radio Bookworm... Oh, do you get that. it as well? Yeah, of course, because I'm quite clever. You can, mm-hmm. also, you can also phone us, actually, if you but want. But don't. But don't. You can phone us on 0161 <laughs> 238 905. But please don't, because I don't know how to get the phone into the studio channel because nobody don't showed that, me that. No. I mean, I could relay it while... <laughs> No. <laughs> so, so you can phone us, but don't. And also, the, the, there's about a fifty percent chance you're in the United States and you're listening to a recording. So probably not. No. Unless you have time but, travel. But the powers. wrestling guys will, will talk to you. They're lovely. If you have time travel powers, <laughs> call us now. Call us now. Call us now. Time travel? No, time travel doesn't exist. Nuts. Yet. Yet. Well, but this what? But no. It's <laughs> if it, look, if it exists, so, it always paradox. exists. Stop it. <laughs> anyway, all of the all, all of those adverts. None of this is relevant to the book review. None of this is relevant to the book review. All these adverts out of the way. And let's talk about a book. What book have I picked? I have picked for today, Twenty First Century Tank Girl, because I have the humour of a child, which is entirely relevant to 21st century Tank Girl. <laughs> if you weren't lucky enough to grow up in the 80s or 90s, you won't know who Tank Girl is. Or you might be familiar with this awful movie you might have watched on Netflix once oh, called no. Tank Girl. We don't talk about the movie. Tank Girl was a 90s creation um, turned up in the indie magazine Deadline. Deadline was all about indie music and bouncing up and down and had a slight punk sensibility. Had loads of comic strips in it and it's kind of its main comic strip because 
British British comic books have to have a, a main settled character somewhere yeah, in their yeah. comic book. Jit two thousand AD has Judge Dredd, Eagle yep. Head, Dan Dare, Deadline because it had comic strips and also music reviews and interviews with Morrissey. Had Tank Girl as its kind of its main draw. Tank Girl is a punk lass, shaven head. She she rides pa- uh, rides a tank round kind of the Australian desert. Sometimes it's seen as a post-apocalyptic yeah. wasteland. Sometimes it's not. It depends on what whimsy. Because she wears a, a port- tank top as well. She wears a tank sometimes. Sometimes so, sometimes she wears a spaceship suit. Sometimes she wears not much at all. It's that kind of comic. It's that kind of a comic. Um, she she bombs around with her occasional boyfriend, Booger, who's also a kangaroo, which gives mm. you a hint that this might be set in Australia, but it's not really. Given the fact that the art, the, the creators of the book, when they were originally creating the, 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 the comic strip back in the 90s, thought that you could drive from Australia to New Zealand and back in a tank. Yeah, no. Anyway. <laughs> well, well, the, 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 uh, the seed that divides them is called the ditch, so, you know. Locally, really, it is. It's it's still people talk about distance. people talk about hopping the ditch. Yeah, it's a very long distance. Mm. Planes di- planes disappear off the radar tracking thing between New Zealand yeah. and Australia. Slightly disconcerting. Anywho, it's an anarchic comic strip, and back in the nineties, it was this really big kind of new thing, where we had a, a punk lass who was independent, running around, blowing things up with the tank, making rude jokes. This is all about the innuendo. This is all about the bottom gag to give you a rough idea this the, the cover that i have because this is a dust covered version um i believe the version in the, sh- the shops will be soft covered but never mind the dust covered version has a very long cylindrical spaceship which tank girl is piloting and in the head in the head of it which is large and bulbous then we have a long uh, it's got lots of pipe work it's very um would we use the word baby venus maybe uh, venus venus yeah, venus, yeah. Uh, be- arterial the cylinder or shaft, uh, and then these two round spherical engines. Um, mm. Yeah, it looks like something rude. And if you're sitting there going, oh, that sounds incredibly childish. It is. It's glorious. Uh, it, it's, it's just on that side of adult when it comes to humour. And the fact that, you know, it's, it's adult technically, but you're being childish. You're, and it comes from a time... It's adolescent, isn't it? It's adolescent. It comes. It has a background from a magazine that was essentially sold to adolescents, people who were still really into music, still really kind of naive about the world, and and still sniggering about you know their genitalia and finding it hilarious, and still finding finding farts funny. The back of this book says, "In space, no one can hear you fart." This is the level of humour we have. <laughs> so, is it any good? Well, sort of. Uh, yes, it is. The short version. It is fun. Um, the the, the, you know, the artists involved got together and created something incredibly, incredibly silly. Uh, Hewlett and Martin, who've been around since well ever, um, Jimmy Hewlett, Alan Martin, are just being very, very silly. We have this. This feels like an annual. I was looking at this, and if if you remember comic book annuals, this is very much like a comic book annual rather than a hardback cut cover. Is it filled with nostalgia? No, it's filled of tank girl. It's not trying to harken back to the olden days. Um, on occasion, they do make reference to the fact that that over the last 20 years or so, she's gone from being this kind of fun, punk, anarchic thing to being another standard part of British culture. Tank Girl is a very British cultural artefact. So there's a, there's a wonderful story in here called Journey to the Centre of the Tank, 
where she goes in the middle of a tank duel she goes into the middle of the tank and finds herself surrounded by all sorts of other pop icons so we have emu we have uh, tom baker's doctor who we have we have bungle um and so on with the two runnies uh we even have the 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 giant sausage on the fork coming from um coming from grange hill grange hill so yeah. we have all these kind of mental images uh, all these mental comma images um that come out the honey monsters here uh, and it's kind of saying, Tank Girl, Tank Girl, she's a cultural icon. The art is very variable because we've got lots of multiple artists involved. There's an lo awful lot of cheesecake pictures in here as well, which is just pictures of, of Tank Girl, Sub Girl and Barney. Tank Girl, Jet Girl and Barney, even. Um, Sub Girl is called Barney, of course, because you can't call her Sub Girl. Um, though they did in the movie for no apparent reason. Um, yes, it's silly. It's daft. It has a giant cylindrical rocket ship flying in between two hills. Yeah. It has an entire very silly take on um, Fear and Loving Las Vegas. It has various parodies of the rock industry, of the music industry. It's very daft, but Tank Girl was always very daft. There's a few prose bits. They are all right. Um, they're not amazing, but they they never were. If if you remember the comic book back in the day, there were prose bits in in Deadline as well about Tank Girl, and they're always just a bit kind of whimsical and a bit silly, and maybe slightly slightly space fillery. It looks pretty. It's very daft. Does it do anything? No, it makes you laugh. Does it say anything? No, it makes you laugh. <laughs> is it is it over any cultural significance? Not really. It's 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 a really staffed series of of slightly adolescent jokes. Is it worth buying? Absolutely. If you want to chuckle, um, <laughs> this is the thing. The, the reason I chose to to review Twenty First Century uh, Tank Girl is to give you a sort of non-review. It's Tank Girl. It's stupid. It's silly. It it's got very pretty drawings of very silly things going on. It'll make you grin from ear ear to ear. Is it going to change your life? Of course it's not. It's Tank Girl. Does it deserve to be made into a movie? Probably not. <laughs> is it worth your time? Yes, it is, because it'll make you chuckle. But it's not, you know, it, 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 this is the thing that I absolutely love about it, is that there's, there's someone somewhere saying they're going, do you know what, we should make a, a TV series. No, you shouldn't make a TV series about Tank Girl. You shouldn't yep. have made a movie about Tank Girl. You should make a toilet book about Tank Girl. You should make it, yes. <laughs> You should totally bring about Tank Girl. You should make a T-shirt with slight, something slightly rude on it about Tank Girl. You should make a cocktail about Tank Girl. You, you should you should make a series of branded beers about Tank Girl. The thing that the thing that doesn't work is is any other media, any other media apart from you know comic books. It's not an extended narrative, is it? It's not. It's not a story. It's a series of really stupid gags, and it works. And the reason this works is because there are lots and lots of little short stories that make mm. you chuckle. If you try and if you try and read it in one sitting, you'll kind of you'll start to get a little kind of uh, bored towards the end mm. because you've heard the gag several times and you know you'll have yep. been ill with the laughing at least once. Put it down, dive in, have a laugh. Um, at the moment, it's out to kickstart the supporters, which has been a lot of people, but it will be on, out on shelves later this year, as we understand it, in a handy softback, mm. kind of easy to read on the toilet style version. Um, 
I don't think it's going to be on Comixology. It might be, but um, you leave the tablet at home and just, you know, go to go to a proper bookshop and buy it if you fancy it. Yeah. Buy the dead tree version. Buy the dead tree version. Um, actually, I'm going to be a bit of a nerd here. Actually, the, the production values are absolutely fantastic. It's proper, proper ink all the way to the page. Thick glossy paper. I really like that. Really nice binding as well. Not that any of you care, you barbarians. So. <laughs> 21st Century Tankville. It's a comic book. You should read it if you fancy a chuckle. It doesn't require any more critical functions beyond that, but have fun with it. Also, if you're desperate for the nostalgia, don't. Just, just, just don't. Just, just read all deadlines because you'll. It's the same thing as before. It's just an annual. It's just daft. Just don't, don't, don't live in the past. It's bad for you. the world 24 hours a day this is family international so i was very lucky enough to talk to will simpson who's coming up next and sure he's uh, storyboard artist for Game of Thrones, and you'd be sitting there going, but Edwards has got to do with books. He's worked on World Trooper, he's he's worked on all sorts of comic books and all sorts of stuff. Lovely chap. Coming up next, Will Simpson. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab Radio International. Will Simpson, welcome to the Bookworm. Well, thank you very much. You've had a very long and varied career. What can you tell us about yourself? Um, well, what do you want to know, Ed? Because, I mean, my, myself, there's a lot of myself to go around. <laughs> I've been, uh, I did comic work for um, a long, long time. I mean, it's it's got to be about 20, 25 years of comic work, I think. Um, some of that overlapped, of course, with the film work that I was doing. But, I mean, I started off years ago in a thing called Big Ben, The Man With No Time For Crime, on Warrior Mag. And um, from that, I ended up going on to Transformers, and from Transformers to Judge Dredd to um, Rogue Tripper, Tyranny Rex, Universal Soldier as well for um, for 2018. Um, I did um, uh, Hellblazer for DC Comics. Um, I did some Batman. I did Vamps um, for DC. And I also did some Aliens for Dark Horse. So, I mean, it's been a, a lot of stuff over the years. Um and during that time, I was, I was just going to continue. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, during that time, I moved. Um, I, I was kind of getting asked to do some film projects, um, so I did a lot. Of, I ended up getting into doing film work at the same time, and then there became more film um, rather than comic work, and that got me to um, my present work on Game of Thrones. Mm. You know, I think there's a certain attention to realistic detail. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I know there's a lot of cartoon stuff you see in, in European graphic novels as well, but, I mean, if you think of the, the classic world of um, Tintin, where there were, you know, very, very detailed backgrounds of places that, that, that were very real, and yet you had the cartoon characters running through them, I, I, I think there's... I think there's something of um, uh, an understanding of art that was different 
in European comics. Now, I don't want to get into a sweeping thing because there's a you know there's loads of American artists who whose work I absolutely adore, and and they were, you know, you can tell that that a lot of the guys were classically trained. I think I think and and it's, I think it's one of those things in the European comics as well that 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 people never really. Um, uh, they always had this background of art that, that that was that was overlaid into the work that they were doing. You know, one of the one of the things I've noticed over the years, I think, was when when you got the new breed of comic artists coming along, and I mean, we're talking about quite some time ago. Um, they, they were learning their skills from other comic artists, as opposed to learning their skills from art first and then doing comic work. Afterwards, you know, you know, when you look back in the days of John Buscema and Neil Adams and people like that, I mean, you can see that they they looked at reality before they actually drew their their work. You know, there there were people, Duke Kubert the same, people who who understood form and and um, and structure of, of human beings, and um, and this it's the same thing with you know within European comics. I think there was a richness in European comics and a and a and a certain. Uh, indulgence in, in European stuff that, that allowed you to um, it was richer in some way you know, the, 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 the sense of what was okay to draw or what was okay to do create, created a, a richer tapestry I think for what would become a graphic novel I mean, graphic novels of course were so big in Europe way before they became anything in the States and it's one, it's, you know, it is one of those things that it, t- it took a while, I think, for people to catch on. It took a long time for Britain to catch on, even though Britain was still, you know, we, we had artists like Don Lawrence, who, of course, moved over to, to France, wasn't it, I think, and, and was doing Storm. Um, you know, the, the, Don, Don had been doing a two-page strip for years in, in Look, and, Look and Learn and um, the Trigon Empire. And, I mean, when you had something like that, which was stunning, and and you see that artwork turned into graphic novel um, style stuff. I mean, you just knew it worked. Um, so I know this is this is rambling, but uh, you you got me thinking about things there. <laughs> How have the different American, British, and European art styles influenced your work? Well, it, it, well, one one of the things about it, you see, because I remember when I was a kid and I and I first started looking at comics, you know, my parents showed me, or, or I mean, they bought me dandies and beanos, so I had I had the cartoon stuff first, but that was only for a very short period of time, because then I discovered war comics, you know, you know, Commando books and War Picture Library and stuff like that, and there was a realism in them that that I really really liked, and I I made a big jump then um, because. Uh, my father used to buy me um, uh, Look and Learn. My brother got to tell me why I got Look and Learn. And the thing, you know, they bought it, they bought it as an educational kind of comic magazine because it had a lot of historical stuff, but with beautiful illustrations. But I used to always turn every week to the um, Trigon Empire at the back, which was a two-page comic strip. And it, I think for me, you know, when you look at something that actually looks like classical painting in two pages, you you kind of go, my God, this is comics as well. I think the diversity of comic work that was coming out of Europe, maybe that's why the graphic novel thing was better. I think the diversity was greater in Europe than it was necessarily um, at one time in the States, you know, because even though when you love comics, you can see the differences in all the different artists that came out of the States. Um, I, I think it was, they were different artists, but within a certain kind of form, 
the thing within Europe was almost anything went, you know, and people approached it with a different in a different um, way. But anyway, sorry, I, I didn't mean to jump in there. But the Trekking Empire, I think, was the thing that really unlocked my head, you know, because my, um, I've been given books on uh, Da Vinci and Michelangelo whenever I started drawing. My my mom figured I was. Um, I was going to do something, you know, so I got fired these books and I scratched my head like an ape and wondered, what the hell, you know, <laughs> I had to draw like this. But when I saw The Trick and Empire, it was almost like that, you know, the, the Renaissance on paper. And you see the kind of people whose work I've loved ever since, you know, people like Barry Windsor Smith, who, who again is somebody who, who art, um, classical art was, was a background for him. Same thing with Jeff Jones, the same thing with Mike Colitti, you know. You, I mean, I love Bernie Wrightson just because he scared the shit out of me, you know. Anyway. <laughs> what was the path that led you to A Game of Thrones and being the storyboard artist for that show? When I first stepped into doing Game of Thrones, you know, I didn't even know what the... What the, the um, uh, the book was or the, the story was that I was asked to do illustrations for but the fact that it was knights in armour and and um, you know strange worlds of castles and, and um, beheadings and things it was straight into what I loved in the past which was Conan territory you know I mean I I I mean, I've said this many times before, but Conan is one of those things that I wish I'd had the chance to do at one point. You know, it's it's like I love the Robert E. Howard stories. I um I loved the the Barry Windsor Smith, Barry Smith as he was, and then his um, uh, amazing uh, Conan stuff. I love the the Basima stuff. You know, you, you, the, the world that was being conjured up on paper was phenomenal, and there was and again because they were the classic artists, there was there was this there was this kind of realism to it that. that that um, made them, there was a grittiness, you know, that, that I loved, and there was an ornateness. And the great thing was that when I stepped into Thrones, um, it was like I was, I was stepping into possibly the greatest comic strip that I could imagine doing, you know, it, it was such good fun. And of course, at, I mean, at that stage, I was, I was doing an awful lot of um, concept work, design work, because nobody knew at that point, because it was the pilot, you know, what this world was going to be like. I mean, I mean, you know, I think I've probably told you this one before, Ed, but the, the fact was I was bought in pre the, um, the pre us knowing that we were actually going to get Game of Thrones in, in Belfast to do. And um, the thing was, I didn't even know it was Game of Thrones when I was first handed, um, you know, information on to, uh, you know, as to doing this work. I was asked to do some moonlighting, basically. Um, one of my producer um, guys, Mark Huffham, Mark had said to me um, about, um, I was working on Your Highness at the time, and he'd said, could I do some extra work um, on a potential TV series that we might be getting? And I said, sure, what is it? And he wouldn't tell me because he, he couldn't. And um, so they gave me descriptions of little passages of things and asked me to draw some castles, some big giant wolves, some um, some knights in armor, some beheadings and things like that, and, I, and gargoyles. So I turned out a bunch of these drawings for the production designer and that stuff was then sent away i went back to work on my day job with your highness and it was only part way through your highness that mark came to me and said we've got game of thrones and um i said well can i have a job then and he said yes so the point was what was lovely about that was as soon as i finished your highness i stepped sideways into into game of thrones and i mean i mean on your highness i've been doing all sorts of concept work as well and storyboarding and the thing was the concepts in your highness were things that we were never going to film. I kept being given stuff that was that was um, 
you know, it was, it was just stuff that turned out to be too expensive or whatever, but they kept firing these things, these ideas at me. And um, when I moved over to Game of Thrones, it was like the serious version of what I'd been doing on Your Highness in some ways. Um, but for me, Game of Thrones was stepping into the closest thing I got to Conan. And I loved, I loved every minute of it. You know, it was weird. It's like there's something in some of these jobs where it takes over and you cannot understand what's coming out of you, you know. You're sitting at a drawing table and, and a completely different situation to the way you normally work. I mean, most of the artists, like myself, um, we, sit, we sit in our own studios and we've got all our lovely reference material around. It's all our comfort, you know. Everything that, 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 um, that we could possibly use that might help inform the artwork that we're trying to do. Yet, when, you, when you're sitting in a, in a uh, film studio room, you know, an art department, and you're sitting at a, at a drawing table, that's your corner, and you turn out work out of your mind. I mean, you, you know, you, you look around the room and see some of the, the reference points, and you go and check a few things, but the point is, you're sitting down, and suddenly this stuff's just belting out of you. And it's like, for me, that was, that was the, the experience every day in Game of Thrones on the pilot. I was walking in and, and just being asked to turn out stuff, and I did. I mean, I got to design the White Walkers. I mean, how cool is that? It was like the, it was like the, um, the the great ultimate bad guys for the show, and I got to do the original kind of set of paintings that then everything after that on the show was based on. You know, so it was it was one of those you you, you understood in a sense that there was an importance to what it was you were doing. You know, and um, you know within the job that is um, because. You know, I bought into the world instantly. It was it was the most amazing thing to be working on. And now, you know, I've done five seasons of storyboards now. And um, the thing is that it's just each each season, it gets more interesting. There's more stuff. There's more fascinating um, uh, story points, you know, that you're trying to hit on. Um, anyway, it's, uh, what, was, what was the question? Sorry. I've gone miles away. What? Will Simpson, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. FabRadioInternational.com Hello there, this is Siloid, and I'm going to be talking to you, giving you a bit of a catch-up on the Farseer trilogy by Robin Hobb. Uh, and the reason why I'm giving you a catch-up is because the Farseer trilogy had a sequel, the Tawny Man trilogy, which had a sequel, the Fits and the Fool trilogy, the second book of which is coming out this August, so I thought I'd give y'all a catch-up in case you've not caught it. You probably... That, that's a lot of trilogy. That's a lot of trilogy. <laughs> um, and it's ace. Um, I am very much behind the times. Most fantasy fans... Well, I won't say most, actually, because that's a bit patronising, but a lot of fantasy fans have read it already. I only started reading it three months ago. Um, it's ironic that Ed and, and, and producer Al were saying, oh, get the, the tree version and sort of vaguely disparaging tablets, because <laughs> if you've got Amazon Prime, like I have, they give you the first book of the Farseer trilogy for free. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they certainly did three months ago. They were a little while ago giving it out for free to get people hooked. Yeah, that, the first one's always free, and it, it is like that. I, I've I've literally read nothing else for the last three months, um, uh, which is why I'm doing the catch up. Um, it, the Farseer trilogy is a great set of books. Uh, if you are buying the paper, the tree version, all the recent editions will have 
uh, some words by George Ra Ra Martin or Guru Martin on the front extolling the virtues of um, of, of the books uh, Ed tells me the two of them are friends I can totally see that um, it's not just because this is a populist uh, fantasy sci-fi bookworm show but because it's, I think there's a legitimate comparison to be made between them they, they explore some very similar themes um, there are what could be described as parallel characters um, between them um, and like I say his words are all over the front cover uh, I would very much recommend the Farseer trilogy and the Tawny Man uh, it's very very well written stuff um, I would recommend it to maybe I don't know a lot of fantasy fans out there might have kids that they're raising the right way, giving them fantasy books, and who might rightly be concerned about exposing the, the older kids to the the scribblings of Guru Martin, the dirty, lecherous, bloodthirsty granddad of fantasy. Um, so what's Robin Hobbs' books about then? Well, moving on. <laughs> uh, Robin Hobbs', Hobbs books are set in the Six Duchies. Um, and there, that's, that's a, a little fantasy kingdom. And into the Six Duchies is born Fitz, uh, Fitz Chivalry, who is um, the, the the illegitimate son of the heir to the throne. And Assassin's Apprentice, the first book, um, starts off uh, with Fitz sort of writing a sort of memoir, and he's trying to remember what it was like, what his first memory is, and his first memory is six years old being brought to um, a keep uh, and being being sort of dumped there by his granddad who can no longer afford to, to look after him and he's dumped there and, and sort of told to, to, to the guardsman, look this is this is uh, Prince Chivalry's bastard son, I can no longer afford to keep him and Upon looking at him, they everyone knows it's true. He is the image of his father, um, and Fitz grows up, sort of, with no one really knowing what to do with him. He's dumped on um, Prince Chivalry's uh, servant and stable master, a guy called Burrich, who acts who acts as his foster father, um, but doesn't really know what to do with him. You know, he carries on running the stables and, and things like that, and kind of fits in raising this boy when he can so the boy has a lot of freedom um, he runs wild in the town makes friends there another thing he does is makes friends with some of Burrich's pet dogs and he makes friends with them in a very interesting way because Fitz has a magic called the wit and it's a thing he doesn't even know he has uh, the wit is a way of talking to animals in your mind and you also bond with animals and you can see through their eyes and they can see through yours um, unfortunately this magic is is kind of shameful and it, witchy and it's looked down on and Burrich himself kind of looks down on it and as soon as he discovers that, that Fitz has bonded with this puppy called Nosy forcibly separates them um, what the books are about is um, well, a, a few different threads. Um, the overarching plot in the Farseer trilogy is that the kingdom is under threat from an outside force of uh, sort of Viking-esque raiders who have these red ships and they raid the land, but they don't take anything. What they do 
is um, they seek to conquer and destroy the inhabitants by means of a, a kind of horrible magic called forging where th th that sucks out people's emotions and hearts. Um, while this is going on, we have Fitz growing up and becoming a young man. Uh, the Farseer trilogy runs between, you know, as I say, the age of six and the age of 20. Fitz has all the kind of angsty stuff um, that um, illegitimate heirs to the throne have. So he's got all the responsibility, but none of the privilege because he's not really an heir to the throne. He's illegitimate. He's forced into um, the position of learning to become an assassin uh, because he's part of the family but can't be acknowledged as part of the family so the family train him as an assassin as he's grown up so he has to he has to deal with secrets and lies uh, as well as the responsibility of this kind of magic that he has to have and keep secret um, there is also a sort of secret background history of legends of different magics that there are, uh, could there be dragons, could there have once been dragons, um, could dragons be the thing that saved the kingdom. Um, so uh, there's a lot of themes running through it and it, it's so readable. The joy of it that I find is that she writes the characters very well, she writes them as very human. Um, She's been often asked the question of why she tortures her characters so much, Robin Hobb. And um, she says, oh, I don't, they do it to themselves. <laughs> and, uh, and it's very true. The, 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 the characters are tortured a lot, um, emotionally, uh, physically. But it's all done, uh, it's not bloodthirsty. It's, um, it's more emotional, it's done very subtly. Um, as I was saying, if, if, if George Martin's the bloodthirsty granddad, she's the adventurous grandma, and you want to listen to her stories. Um, you you, you want to, you know, she, she's got a voice in storytelling which is, it's compelling, uh, and she kind of draws you in. Um, she, she's got a lot of knowledge about wilderness life herself, and you can tell the main character as he, you know, he, raise, he, he befriends animals and things like that. Um, you can believe it, and you can believe his wanderings across the countryside and the camp stories and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of real life input in there. Um, there is uh, plots about uh, court intrigue and who will who will be the heir to the throne, who will succeed. People deposing other people and court in the middle is our main character Fitz, who has to keep his secrets and negotiate all this. It's really, really interesting stuff. What I'd like to do, I, I, I'm doing a terrible injustice here. I think I'm rambling on. So what I'll do is I'll just do a very short reading extract. Have I got time, Producer Al? Yeah. Okay. I will. Okay. This scene is where Fitz and his stepdad, his foster father, Burrich, are riding. Uh, Burrich disapproves of the wit and the friendship with animals, uh, but even though he has the power himself. Okay. It's a wolf, isn't it? Burrich spoke grudgingly into the darkness. He looked straight ahead as we rode. I knew the set of his mouth. You know I am, a grinning, tongue-lolling reply from the wolf. Burrich flinched as if poked. Night eyes, I admitted quietly, rendering the image of his name into human words. Dread sat me. Burrich had sensed him. He knew. No point in denying anything anymore. But there was a tiny edge of relief in it as well. I was deathly tired of all the lies I lived. 
Burritch rode on silently, not looking at me. I did not intend for it to happen. It just did. An explanation, not an apology. I gave him no choice. Night Eyes was being very jocular about Burritch's silence. I put my hand on Sooty's neck, taking comfort in the warmth and life there. I waited. Burritch still said nothing. I know you will never approve, I said quietly, but it is not something I can choose. It is what I am. It is what we all are. Night Eyes smirked. Come, heart of the pack, speak to me. Will not we hunt well together? And one thing that Robin Hobb does is she does the voices of animals really, really well. And as an animal fan myself, I, I love the way she does the different voices of the different animals. Uh, it's completely enchanting, as with a lot of the rest of the writing. I, I, I'm always completely enchanted by Robin Hobb, I have to admit. It's one of the things that um, happens quite often um, when I talk to other authors and I say, who do you want to write like? It's almost always Robin Hobb. Mm. They're fantasy authors, absolutely. Um, so, coming up next, do we have enough time to talk about something else? Yes. Okay, so coming up next, I think we're going to talk about gravity, I think. Ooh, gravity. the world 24 hours a day this is Fab Radio International so um, shall we talk about gravity and, and it's all, all its defiance and all the rest of it. Defying gravity. Defying. Not, I mean, are we talking about the Oscar-winning movie Gravity? We are. We are talking about the Something Oscar- has changed within me. So, yes. Anyway, we're talking about the Oscar-winning movie Gravity, which won a Hugo. Um, the Hugo's ever mm. being on. The Hugo's ever being on the cutting edge of that sort of thing. He said slightly. Hopefully. Yeah, helpfully. <laughs> oh, well, it, it, it's that whole thing that um, uh, Superman won instead of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. Um, we, 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 yeah. we were back when they were things. And ever since then, people have gone, oh, Hugo, Hugo Awards for media aren't as relevant as Hugo Awards for books. Mm. But anyway, uh, you should, if you have the rights to vote for a Hugo Award, you should totally vote for us on Best Fan Cast. We've stopped being subtle about it, <laughs> just vote for us. We weren't uh, particularly subtle about it to begin with, but hey. Have we even been nominated yet? Nominations are currently open. Good. So nominate. Nominate, nominate, nominate. Like a Dalek, nominate. Smooth sight. It's almost nominate. like we planned that. <laughs> um, so, uh, the uh, Tess Gerritsen, Gerritsen? Tess Gerritsen, um, who is known for her Resolian Isles books, also wrote a book called uh, Gravity, which is about a female scientist who, you know, it, who, who is essentially, she wrote a book that is essentially the plot of Gravity. Mm. Um, so she sold the right to New Line Productions. Um, then the uh, Alonso uh, Alfonso Cuaron was uh, attached to the project. There was a whole thing. Then New Line sold the rights on to Warner, and then Warner basically went, "Oh well, hang on, we don't need to um, we don't need to credit the the author because we never signed a contract. New Line did." It's a short version of that, and now it's in court. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm, I'm led to understand that, you know, in 2008, Alfonso Cuaron sort of showed them his original script for this film, Gravity. <laughs> really? <laughs> this is my idea, despite the fact that I've been attached to another project that's exactly the same name with exactly the same concept. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, really, really? Um, come on, chaps, that's really, really not on. I mean, as I understand it with the court case, it's not so much been thrown out as it as it. It's, there's been procedural shenanigans to slow it all down. Mm, yeah, it, the way it seems to have worked is they've they've not so much thrown it out as said, right, okay, you, you're you're suing for the wrong thing. Come, you know, rephrase and bring go, it back. Go go away, redraft your redraft, options, <laughs> come back, and come back. <laughs> uh, essentially, giving them a statement which is a roadmap to what options to. To, to, to put in their next motion so but uh, I mean if it goes for, if, if it doesn't get through and it doesn't get challenged and it doesn't get, this doesn't get fixed this is a horrible horrible thing because I think for you know getting published is a very hard thing to do mm. getting then getting to sell sell the film rights I mean we have a story almost every week about getting to sell the film rights but that's that's 50 people out yeah. of out of millions. However, it will destroy that ambition. There'll be no point in having that ambition if you can now just get screwed over by the studio. Exactly. I mean, it, it happens. It happens too much already. Uh, we could talk about Alamo, but let's not. Um, happens all. Actually, I've gone on total tangent in my head. Could you imagine if 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 a movie studio look turns around to Alamo and says we want to do the movie rights? For one of your works, and it's Jerusalem, his million-word, <laughs> practically unfilmable, reportedly almost unreadable novel. Right. Um, could you imagine? We've got these rights. Excellent. Give him the money right now. We try and convert that. Bang! I, I would laugh like a drain if that actually happened. <laughs> it won't happen. See, he won't do that. But um, that'd be hilarious. You know, be hot. the thing with gravity is, uh, it's like we came ac- across this recently. And it's just one of those things. I think the thing that slightly annoyed me, and we're trying to avoid talking about Black Library for some reason. But when there was a whole rights issue between a book called Spots of Space Marine and Black Library, mm. well, lots of people I, I couldn't move for for outrage mm. uh, and for out, uh, anger, despite the fact that it was actually much more nuanced than that. Right. This is a clear cut case of someone's work being stolen and turned into a Hollywood movie. I've only just heard about it. Yeah, they, they they should. I'm stunned because it's not. I suppose because it's not hot button because it's not sexy. Um, I'm stunned. There's not more anger going on. There isn't. You know, you, I, I would have expected the usual. You know, Twitter outrage machine to have gone un, in the full swing. Mm. I find it fascinating that it hasn't. I find it interesting that it ha- hasn't. Even though this is something that kind of matters. Sure. Well, and on that note on that bombshell. This is Fab Radio International. I've been your host, Dead Fortune. And I've been your other host, Cy Lloyd. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Cy Lloyd, produced by A.L. Johnson. Mm-hmm.